I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Finding a diagnosis for a child with a rare condition can be challenging, even when his mother is a genetic counselor. Daniel Bonadie's son, Ethan, was born with a brown birthmark known as a cafe au lait spot. But as similar spots proliferated over the next few months, his pediatrician recognized it as a potential sign of a rare genetic disorder. It wasn't until Ethan was two that Genetic testing led to a formal diagnosis of neurofibromatosis type 1, a genetic condition that leads to the development of tumors that can affect the brain, nerves, and spinal cord. We spoke to Bonadies about caring for a child with neurofibromatosis, how her professional and private lives have been thrust together because of her son's diagnosis, and her evolution as a patient advocate. Danielle, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here this afternoon. We're going to talk about your son, Ethan, neurofibromatosis, and his diagnostic odyssey. Uh, Before we do that, though, I thought it would be worth starting with you. You spent nearly 20 years as a genetic counselor. For listeners who may only have a vague sense of what a genetic counselor does, can you explain that? Absolutely. It's a really common question when I get asked about what I do and what a genetic counselor does. But genetic counselors have advanced training in medical genetics. And one of our main jobs is to help counsel and guide patients through the genetic testing process. So we learn about whether someone might be at risk for an inherited disease and then help them determine if genetic testing is right for them interpret that test result, and then incorporate those results back into their healthcare decisions. So genetic counselors can really be found in lots of different areas of medicine. So prenatal, pediatrics, oncology. And I'll give you a few examples because I think that these kind of bring the, the role to life. But anybody considering a pregnancy might be referred to a genetic counselor to learn about whether their future child may be at risk for a genetic condition. Or even if that person is already pregnant, they might be referred for testing during pregnancy or maybe based on an ultrasound finding. So that's a lot of people, right? Anyone who's thinking about getting pregnant or who already is pregnant. Or other examples might be a seemingly healthy teenage athlete who experiences a cardiac event during intense exercise. Many of those have an underlying genetic cause. Or the area that I spent most of my clinical time is actually in the oncology space. So I saw individuals with either a personal history of cancer or a family history of cancer, and I'd help them go through the genetic testing process to learn if those cancers might be genetic or running in their families. And really, in all of those situations, the goal is to provide more information to those patients so that they can make good healthcare decisions with them. And, you know, not all of those decisions are easy. You know, some individuals that I met with were choosing to have their breast tissue removed to reduce their risk of breast cancers. For others, it might be honing in on treatments that can help um, treat their condition. But really, in all of these settings, 
um, our goal is to provide patients more information. And I should also say that that's kind of the role where patients interact with genetic counselors, but they can also be seen in all sorts of different um, industry settings, laboratories, research, education, um, industry, um, really across the healthcare field. Well, how do genetic counselors work with patients? Where do they fit in within the care continuum? And does their involvement extend beyond just a diagnosis? That's a great question because genetic counselors often do see patients just for a short period of time. So it's often during a diagnosis period or when they get referred based on something. But I truly believe that because the pace of genetics is evolving so quickly and we are learning so many things, not only about genetic testing, but also about the genetic conditions that we know about, that we really need to have a system to keep in touch with patients over time and deliver those updates to them. And so it was actually from some of the things that my colleague and I experienced in clinic of wanting to reach back out to patients to let them know about changes that had happened, that we left clinical practice to start a company called MyGene Council, which is a digital health company. And so what we do is we track and we collate and then we deliver those updates directly to patients that are based on their genetic test result. And so it's really from the idea that without good information, you can't make good decisions. And so we're putting that information into the hands of patients and clinicians so that they can make informed medical decisions. I wanted to touch on your own background because your son, Ethan, was eventually diagnosed with a a rare genetic condition. Uh, You were a genetic counselor before he was born. When did you first become concerned what happened? Yeah, so we actually first noticed his very first cafe au lait spot on the day that he was born. It was, you know, absolutely adorable. It was one of the unique things that we were kind of uncovering about our newborn son when we found a cafe au lait spot is a, a birthmark. That's right. So often it's called a cafe au lait spot because it looks like a spot of uh, poured coffee, like a little spot. And so he has a few of them now, but we saw one on that first day and I actually have one. And so it was a bonding moment for me. And lots of people in the general population have them and they just have one or two. But, you know, the next couple of months flew by with this newborn baby. And by the time he was three months old, he had dozens. And so although I am a genetic counselor, it wasn't me who first suspected that he might have a genetic condition. It was his pediatrician. But when I heard the words referral to genetics, it all clicked. And I knew that she thought that he might have a condition called neurofibromatosis. Did you make the connection to neurofibromatosis at that time? Were you doing your own background research on this or... It's more just all the lights clicked, like, oh, based on all of the cafe au lait spots that he has, that might be something that she's thinking about. And so she wanted us to go see a genetics professional. And it was one of those, what do you mean? I am a genetics professional. Um, But we did make an appointment. And you would think that, you know, with kind of my background, that we might be seen in a couple weeks. But really, it took two years for us to get a diagnosis. And when I stop and think about that, it's really mind-blowing. I mean, I had access to knowledge, to colleagues. The path should have been a lot 
more straightforward. But even with that, it took two years. What did it take two years? What was the process of going from that first concern raised by your physician to actually getting the diagnosis? Yeah, so you might think that, you know, we would just call and make an appointment and it would take a couple of weeks. But when we were finally able to see the geneticist, Ethan did have genetic testing and a full exam, but his genetic testing did not reveal anything. And so although his clinicians were still very suspicious that he had this condition, neurofibromatosis, his genetic testing, you know, did not reveal that. And at first, I was really elated. I was shocked. I really couldn't believe, you know, maybe he didn't have NF. And when that possibility came along, I really, I really clung to it. And it just shows how strong, you know, denial can be when you want your child to be healthy and kind of have a really positive looking future. But we were told really to watch and wait. And this is one of the problems in the diagnosis area for NF is that many of the features are age related. And so for parents like ourselves with a three month old or a two year old who just doesn't have enough symptoms to make a true diagnosis and that many of the features may evolve over time, you know, later in childhood. And this watch and wait period was really hard. It, it didn't really sit well with us, and it was, it was really difficult. Were there any other symptoms other than the birthmarks? There were. So during this watch and wait period, um, Ethan developed freckling in his armpits called axillary freckling. And these freckles develop in individuals who have NF in areas that are not exposed to the sun. So you can think of armpits or the groin area. But even with this second clinical sign, it wasn't enough for a diagnosis. And with my background and knowing that there was still like this really small percent chance that he could have maybe a different genetic syndrome that didn't come with all of the significant risks for tumors that neurofibromatosis does, I still held on to hope. How was he ultimately diagnosed? So by the time Ethan was almost two, he had had his genome analyzed twice. And in neither analysis, anything was found. So we know that genetic testing isn't perfect and that there's lots of nuances and that the technology is always getting better. But when we returned, you know, when he was about two years old, still without a definitive diagnosis, we asked to have repeat genetic testing done again, but this time sent to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which has a specialized lab that does NF testing. And when we got that result back, it showed his exact NF pathogenic variant. And that for, was the time for me that it became real. And it was really hard. That was the day in my mind that he had a diagnosis. So we had an answer. It just really wasn't the one that I was hoping for. And he was diagnosed with the type 1 form of the condition? That's correct. Neurofibromatosis has two types, type 1 and type 2, and they are very different conditions. But Ethan has neurofibromatosis type 1. And, and what is neurofibromatosis type 1? Yeah, so when I'm trying to simplify it the most for myself or when I'm just, you know, talking more casually with someone, um, I describe it as a condition that can cause a tumor to grow on any nerve in the body. 
And so these can be tumors that show up on the skin. Those are called cutaneous neurofibromas. Or those tumors can be deep within the nervous system called plexiform neurofibromas. And so those two things kind of seem to cover the really two big things. But really on a more nuanced level, um, NF1, as I call it for short, um, is really a fairly common inherited condition. It happens in about 1 in 2,500 people. And we already talked about some of the common things that happen, like the cafe au lait spots or the light brown skin spots, the frecklings in the armpits or the groin, as well as those neurofibromas that can happen either on or under the skin. But in addition to that, about 50% of individuals with NF1 can have learning challenges. And that's something that we're facing with Ethan now as he's entering into school age. Um, individuals can often have softening or curving of the bones that cause scoliosis. And occasionally there can be tumors in the central nervous system as well. There's also a really kind of long list of other things, but these are some of the most common. And while most of these tumors that I mentioned aren't cancerous, there is a small chance that they can convert to become a cancerous tumor. On a personal level, really, um, NF is really complex to understand and then also to relate to, to others because it's so unpredictable and it impacts everybody differently. So some people have very minor impacts and you might meet them as an adult and never know. Um, and others have very major impacts that impact their every day. And it's really not possible to know yet if your young child who's three months old or now six years old is going to be impacted in a very severe way or in a very minor way. And sorry, just the second piece to that is that, you know, I mentioned the list of kind of associated issues. It's really a mile long. And so I've mentioned a couple of the more common ones, but, but there are many. Even though it's a very heterogeneous condition, are there predictable progressions to the condition? Are there things you need to watch out for? Absolutely. So um, some of the things that we've already talked about, like these cafe au lait spots or even the freckling, they don't really impact medical care in any way. But as a for young children who have NF, one of the things that we need to look out for are optic nerve tumors, so the nerve that runs from the eyes back into the brain. And so someone like Ethan has detailed eye exams every six months. Um, and then as they progress into school age, you know, like I mentioned with Ethan, we need to look for learning disabilities or learning differences. And then as the children continue to age, these uh, neurofibromas either on the skin or internally can start to grow larger. We know that puberty is actually a time of significant and rapid growth of those tumors. And so that's a time um, that's a particular kind of concern and that we need to, to look out for those. How has the condition affected Ethan to the point of his everyday life? Yeah, so he's a very happy and giggly six-year-old. Um, he loves Tate's cookies. Um, that's his only dessert that he'll eat. Um, you know, you might think uh, ice cream and lollipops and things like that, but he's strictly a chocolate chip cookie guy. Um, but on the average day, NF actually doesn't affect him too much. 
Um, in the past, he's had some trouble with speech, and he does have a few plexiform neurofibromas. Um, he has two brain tumors as well. And so you can imagine that we have to keep, keep an eye on these things. And for us as a family, we decided that having MRIs was important to help monitor those tumors, to know, have a baseline of, you know, how big are they or are they growing? Um, right now, this isn't part of standard care, um, but I believe, and, you know, this is just my personal opinion, that um, the recent FDA approval of a drug called selumetinib or sometimes called Casalugo may change the way that we monitor these tumors. So in the past, MRIs weren't as common because there weren't any treatment options. They weren't able to give medications. But now that we have one, um, the medical and the research community needs to answer big questions about, you know, should we be monitoring these tumors? When is it time to treat? You know, do we wait till that tumor causes pain or, you know, changes the curvature of someone's spine? when it doubles in size or triples. And we don't have the answers now, but we as parents, you know, have to make the decision about tumors that we know our son has, you know, before the research community will likely have an answer to those questions. Oh, what's this like to live with as a, as a parent? Do you find you need to be extra vigilant about monitoring his health? Are you, you on the lookout for tumors or other manifestations? Always. And so Ethan is actually one of three. And so, you know, we are vigilant about all of our kids, but particularly when, you know, he mentions that something hurts, we may write it down or see if he says it again the next day. And so there's a little bit, you know, extra attention to those types of things that happen. Um, I would say that, you know, as a caregiver, my kind of biggest resource is my husband, and hopefully I am for him too. But, you know, it's pretty anxiety provoking to have a child that already has tumors, um, is at risk for these tumors to grow, you know, very significantly over, over his lifetime. We are going to have to make decisions across his lifetime about potentially this medication, which is a chemotherapy um, that he would take every day. And we're really each other's support systems, but at the same time, we're each going through the throes of exactly the same thing in terms of the emotions related to this condition. Um, but it's important for us to be on the same page, and it helps to be in it together. Having a child with a, a, a complex medical condition can feel somewhat isolating. It, it places additional demands on you, and, and people may not always be aware of understanding those demands, particularly when your child appears perfectly normal from the outside. Has this been an issue? So far, it hasn't in terms of his everyday life. I will say that for any child who has any type of medical condition or even adult, it's almost like another full-time job to manage the different specialties that he has to see and to schedule his appointments and reschedule them. And sometimes we travel for those appointments as well. And so then there's uh, transportation and housing related to that. Um, so it can get quite significant. And right now he's healthy, right? So when things uh, escalate, if they ever do, um, that be may become even more intense. 
you've gotten involved in patient advocacy. You do work with the Children's Tumor Foundation. For listeners not familiar with the foundation, can you explain what it is, what it does? Absolutely. Um, So when my husband Peter and I first learned of Ethan's diagnosis, it really, it took us a while to digest and kind of come out of our haze. Um, But when we did, we knew that we wanted to do something to help end NF. And those two words, I think, are really critical. They're not raise awareness for NF. They're not research NF or treat NF. Um, All of those pieces are, of course, critical, yes. But the ultimate goal that really resonated with us, and it's the ultimate vision of the Children's Tumor Foundation, is to end NF. You see a lot of different advocacy groups out there with different missions in mind. But theirs is really to bring together stakeholders, whether it be the patients themselves, uh, pharma, researchers, government, medical professionals, to really put the pieces together and pave the way towards treatments and ultimately a cure. And so they have really a amazing staff, amazing individuals who work there. They're a powerhouse. And I'm just so thankful for all the people that came before us to help build this fantastic foundation. And from an advocacy point of view, what what do you do? Yeah, so we believe that getting involved with the Children's Tumor Foundation was important. And so when Ethan was about to turn three, we started a fundraiser to benefit the Children's Tumor Foundation. And we mainly use social media and our, the network of our friends and family near and far. And we've done it for three years now. And I, the outpouring of support has just been breathtaking and astounding. And it's not just the donations that happen, but it's the people, our friends telling other friends and really kind of that chain effect that that happens. It's just incredibly heartwarming to know that all of these people care and are willing to contribute towards something that's so uh, close to our hearts. Um, In terms of other things that I've done with the Children's Tumor Foundation, I've helped plan some of their annual forums and summits. I'm involved in the registry that they have where clinicians and researchers can access that registry for to-do research. And then most recently, I joined their patient engagement program, and that's going to kind of be a bridge between researchers um, and helping bring some of the patient perspective to when they're designing new studies or therapies. So I'm really excited about that. I suspect when other patient advocates learn your genetic counselor, their, their eyes might widen. Given your background, do you find people trying to tap your expertise or Are you able to leverage that scientific grounding at all for your advocacy work? I absolutely want them to. I mean, I want to combine these skills to help push the field forward, right? There's no one more motivated than someone who either has or has a close family member who has a condition. And so I'm really most excited about this upcoming work with the patient engagement group with the Children's Tumor Foundation and kind of bringing a lot of those stakeholders together, researchers and institutions, pharma. We may work with Um, you know, the FDA or other patient advocacy groups. But really the goal, again, is to help accelerate the development of new treatments and really focus on um, pushing towards getting towards a cure. If you go on the Children's Tumor Foundation website, you'll see a robust pipeline of therapies in development. Uh, 
What's your hope for seeing the treatment landscape evolve here? Yeah, it's really exciting. So now that we have the first approved therapy, which happened uh, just a short time ago, uh, we're anticipating that the field is really going to open. So researchers and pharma know that we are an invested community and that we can fill clinical trials and that we can kind of help push the field forward. We're invested with them to be part of those studies. And so there's new treatments that are in clinical trials, which is great. There's lots of kind of interesting things happening. The thing that I'm most kind of passionate or interested in is this idea of gene gene editing, where we can maybe cure a condition with a single treatment. I think we are likely many, many years away from something like that, but that would be something that would impact, you know, not only the neurofibromatosis community, but um, many conditions that have health impacts. And so I think that that could be really amazing. Danielle Bonadie is genetic counselor and NF1 advocate. Danielle, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.